a while back, Bob and Marcia had a chance to get away, and they came back telling us this story about being on a sailboat. They were anchored at St. Lucia when a sailing yacht cruised into harbor. It was actually called a super yacht because of its size, 172 feet long. Now, to put that in perspective, our CLC from the stage area to the back wall is 60 feet, but the width of the CLC is 120 feet. So this yacht, this super yacht, is the entire length of the CLC and almost half again as much. Well, you kind of notice when something like that cruises into harbor. It had a crew of 10 people on it, and it was obvious that they were making preparations for the owners to arrive. They were shopping and provisioning the ship, and they were cleaning and polishing everything. They got up early in the morning, and all these 10 crewmen were up on deck putting the final touches, you know, making sure everything was polished till it was shining in the, the morning sun. But then, as so often happens in a tropical place like St. Lucia, it started to sprinkle. Now, it didn't go on for very long, but it was just enough to send them all into a frenzy. They all ran back up on deck, and they started wiping everything down again and polishing it back up, and, and then it started to rain again. And they all became very frantic. They ran back up on deck, and they were polishing and drying everything off. They wanted everything to be just right. But then it started to rain again. Now, Marsha and Bob were sitting on deck, drinking a cup of coffee, enjoying the peace and the beauty of this tropical island, and they couldn't help but notice all the frenzied anxiousness over on this yacht. Now, this crew had been doing everything they could to make sure everything was absolutely perfect before the owners arrived, even trying to withhold the rain, but you can't hold the rain back. Finally, that evening, the owners had flown in, and they arrived on deck, and it just so happened it was a young couple and their two young daughters. They came on board, and this is a super yacht. It has a crew of 10, and they have room for cabins for 10 additional people. But it was just this young couple, their two daughters, and they were going to be cared for by all of these 10 crewmen. All of their needs, all of their desires, every little whim would have been met by these crew people. So much so that they were trying to hold back the rain so everything would be spotless. Now, Bob and Marsha are watching all of this, and they started to wonder about the two little girls. And they wondered, who's going to help them to realize that they can have a perfect vacation, even if it rains a little? that they can enjoy the perfect love of their parents, even if there are a few spots on the handrail. Who was going to teach these two little girls about the difference between flawless and perfect? This morning, we're continuing on with our sermon series, Made for Goodness. It's our Lenten series. The season of Lent is the 40 days, not including Sundays, that are the countdown to Easter. 
Now, in the early church, it was a time when people who were going to join the church prepared their hearts and minds to enter into the, the church, and they got ready for an Easter baptism. It was also a time when people who had left the church, who had fallen away, could come back and renew their spirits and, and join back into the family of faith. Historically, throughout the years, it has become a time for all Christians to do a self-examination, to turn inward and kind of take stock of their relationship with God. And that is how we're approaching it. We are looking through this sermon series about how we've been made for goodness, how our relationship with God is shaped by the very fact that we are the children of God. If you look at the creation story in the book of Genesis, you see that every day after God completed that day's work, God proclaimed it to be good. But on the last day, when all of creation was finished and God had created female and male in God's image, God proclaimed it to be very good. We were made in that goodness, in that perfect love of God. John Wesley, the founder of the Methodist tradition, commented on that creation story. He said that every day God proclaimed creation to be good, but on the last day, God proclaimed it to be very good because it was the fullness of creation, because it was the fullness of God's design, because it was the fullness of God's glory, but also because we were made in God's image, and that was the fullest expression we were the image of God's love here on earth, and that is very good. You know, today's scripture passage is one that throughout the years has caused a lot of misunderstanding. Jesus tells us to be perfect, therefore, as your Father in heaven is perfect. This is one of those passage, passages that it's critical to understand the context in which it was written. Jesus is not saying that we have to be flawless. Nowhere is that in this passage. Jesus had been talking all this time about how to love. He's talking to a group of people, and he knows our sense of humanity. And to be honest, it's easier to love people who love us back. Jesus knows that about us. It's easier to love our family. It's easier to love our friends. It's easier to love people who are nice to us. But Jesus calls us to a higher calling. He says, I want you to love people, even those who are not nice. Jesus says, I want you to love your enemies. Be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. Jesus is not talking about our actions or our accomplishments, but the way we love be perfect in love as your Father in heaven is perfect in love. Love others as your Father in heaven loves you. Now, it's this very notion of perfection that's been a very strong part of the Methodist tradition since its beginning. John Wesley had this deep understanding and appreciation for perfection. It's been a part of our history. In fact, to this very day, if you are wanting to be ordained in the United Methodist Church, you are asked the historical questions of Wesley that have been around since the very beginning. Your bishop does an examination of you in front of the entire 
um, conference, and he asks 18 questions of you. Three of them are about perfection. The first is, are you going on to perfection? The second, do you expect to be made perfect in love in this life? And third, are you earnestly striving after it? And the answer to all three is yes. We are moving on to perfection, but what the Wesleyan understanding is that we want that perfect love that God gives us. We want God to help us to perfectly love all people in the world. And we want to be about striving, yearning for that kind of love in our lives. One of John Wesley's more famous sermons was the one entitled Christian Perfection. And at the very beginning of that, he talks about this notion of perfection as one that it probably has caused more arguments than any other scriptural topic. He says that the, the term perfect can set people so much on edge that it becomes an abomination to them. And that anyone who actually preaches about perfection or believes that it could be possible and attainable is so ridiculed as to become like a heathen to others. In the time of Wesley, there were a large group of people who felt that it would be better to totally set that passage aside. But for Wesley, he said, that's not possible because this is the word of God. And so in this sermon, Wesley wrestles with two questions. He names, it the, names them at the very beginning of his sermon, which was his habit to do. The first question, in what sense are Christians not perfect? And number two, in what sense are they? Now for Wesley, he says, we aren't perfect in knowledge. We don't know everything yet. We make mistakes. We get sick. There are circumstances in this world that we'll experience that aren't perfect. So in all those senses, of course we're not perfect. Our actions you know, we'll have flaws in this life. But for Wesley, the important part of the sermon, in what sense are we perfect? And we are made perfect in God's love. Perfection was a sense of holiness, a way that God's perfect love transforms us and our ability to love others. For Wesley, it's this important notion that transforms us and our ministry. And I think there are three important things that we can look at and discuss today that can help us to understand the difference between flawless and perfect. The first is that perfect love allows for flaws. There was a head of an agency not too long ago who took an internal study of all her employees. And in this study, there were just two questions. And she was amazed by the results that came back. The first question was, are you giving your absolute best for this company? 100% said yes. The second question, do you think your coworkers are giving their best? Only 50% said yes. And so everyone thought that they were giving their best, but only half of them thought their friends and co-workers were doing as well. The Walt Disney Corporation describes that phenomenon in this way. They said that we judge ourselves 
by our intentions, but we judge others by their actions. That isn't perfect love. That's not the love of God. And thank goodness for us, because all of us make mistakes. We might have the best of intentions, but sometimes even our best intentions don't measure up. We will make mistakes. We will have flaws. But perfect love allows for those flaws. There are times that even when we judge ourselves, we know that we have lots of mistakes in our lives. We're critical of ourselves. One of those people who has really struggled with that through the years is the actress Jamie Lee Curtis. Now, I love a lot of her films. I love some of the comedies, Freaky Friday, um, Trading Places. I love the action film, True Lies. I skipped out on all of her horror slasher films of the Halloween movie series. Halloween 1, Halloween 2, Halloween 3, and then there were a whole bunch of, that she didn't do, but she came back for the, the most recent one, Halloween Resurrection, which has nothing to do with the resurrection we talk about during the season of Lent. She's done all this work, and for so much of her life, she struggled with self-worth. She struggled with this drive to be perfect. And several years ago, she talked about that in an interview on Dateline. She was being interviewed by Maria Shriver, and she was talking about being in the industry and all the hardships she put herself through to be this perfect specimen. And she said that she was going to a photo shoot, and on the spur of the moment, she decided to go ahead with the glamorous photo shoot that they were planning on. But at the last minute, she asked them to go ahead and take photos of her that weren't so glamorous, that were her in her sports bra and shorts, no makeup, no fancy hair, and no airbrushing or photoshopping. She said, I wanted people to see me. So too often in life, people have only seen the Hollywood version of me, and it makes others feel bad about themselves because they don't look like that. But the truth is, I don't either. She said, I wanted a picture that was the picture of me that I see when I look in the mirror. Thighs that are a little too big, a stomach that's a little too soft, wrinkles on my face, I wanted them to see my age. I wanted them to see what I see. Now, if you remember that photo shoot, there was incredible feedback and support for her doing that. But I think that's continued throughout the years that she really is someone that people can see. There almost seems to be this very genuine comfort in herself. She seems to be confident in who she is and how she is aged. She said it's been a struggle. She said early on, all of her acceptance of herself was around her looks. And so she exercised and dieted continuously. And then she went through Botox injections and plastic surgeries. She would become addicted to painkillers and alcohol after one of her pl plastic surgeries. And she said one of her greatest achievements in life that she's most proud of is becoming clean after that addiction. And now she's been clean over 15 years after that kind of struggle. Well, after being so focused on her looks, she knew that wasn't healthy for herself. 
And so she found self-acceptance in her acting career. But that didn't last long because the only way she felt good of herself was by portraying someone else. And so finally, she really stepped back and, and took assessment of who she is in life. She's been married to her husband over 25 years. They have two wonderful children. And she said, I love children. She is a strong supporter for children's hospitals and children's advocacy issues. And so she decided to write children's books. And she's been very successful. She sold over four and a half million children's books. And she says, now this is who I am. I moonlight as an actress, but my identity is wrapped up in this. I think somewhere along the line, she discovered that her true identity in life is not found in how she looks or how she acts, but it's something that comes from within and she feels secure in the love that she feels from those around her and in the love that she's able to express. She was made for that kind of life. Second, it's important that we see that living our goodness testifies that God loves us perfectly. In the book, Made for Goodness, Archbishop Desmond Tutu talks about his upbringing. He lived in apartheid South Africa. They were poor. They were facing all the prejudice and hate and pain of oppression. And yet he talks about the love that he felt in his family. One of his favorite things to do was to go visit his grandmother during the Christmas holiday. She lived in a place called Sturtonville. Now, Sturtonville was a black township in South Africa that was connected to a white township. All the people that worked in the white township that were black had to live outside the town. And so every, um, every white township in the days of apartheid had a corresponding kind of black dormitory town where all the workers would reside. And that's where his mother or his grandmother would live because she worked nearby. And over the Christmas holidays, they would all go to visit her. She had a four-room house. It was very small, but during that time, it would house his grandmother, his two parents, two of his cousins, himself, and two of his sisters. He said that it had proper walls, but it had a dirt floor. There was no indoor plumbing or running water. They had to share a, a waste bucket for a toilet, and that was shared between three or four families on the block. Twice a day, they would have to go to the community water tap to obtain water and collect water for all of their household needs for cleaning and bathing and cooking. And he said, despite all this, what I felt in this house was love. I want to read to you how he describes this. Looking back now from the comfort of my Cape Town home with its bright, beautiful rooms and gleaming bathrooms, I can see all that we lacked. But to me, growing up, the house in Sturtonville was perfect. It was a place in which we could live a good life. It was a house that was loved in. Our life in Sturtonville did not meet the usual definition of perfection, 
but our life in that place was whole. Caring and concern filled the gaps that circumstance created. Caring and concern filled the gaps that circumstance created. The perfection of that Sturtonville home is the kind of perfection that is in God's invitation to us and in Jesus' command to the Christian. Be perfect, therefore, as your Father in heaven is perfect. Now, Archbishop Tutu knew the misunderstanding around the word perfect. We can hear that word and instantly become anxious because we know that we aren't. We know that we have failed tests. We have not achieved our goals. We have not hit the target. Sometimes when we hear the word perfection, we think back to an impossible standard that someone placed upon us. Maybe it was a parent or a spouse. Either way, they were putting something on us, whether trying to criticize or lift us up, but either way, it, it was hurtful because we knew that we just couldn't measure up to it. Maybe we had parents who just kept reminding us that we weren't the perfect child. If only you could be like your brother or sister. Or maybe we were the ones that they put on the pedestal. They kept comparing us and holding us up in front of our siblings, talking about how wonderful we were, and deep down inside we knew that we were a fraud because we just couldn't measure up. And so when we hear the command of Jesus to be perfect, it fills us with this anxiousness because we know that we can't measure up to that. But Jesus' command to be perfect is not about flawlessness. That is not God's desire or design for our lives. This invitation is one to wholeness. It's an invitation to know joy and peace in our life. It's not a command to be perfect in, you know, and, and flawless. It's an invitation to be whole and perfect in love. Listen to how Desmond Tutu writes this. God's call to be perfect is not just a command. It's an invitation. It's an invitation to something that is possible. It's an invitation to something that is life-giving to something joy-creating. God invites us to a godly perfection. Godly perfection is not flawlessness. Godly perfection is wholeness. Tutu goes on to describe Mrs. Mafasela. She's a middle-aged woman who lives outside of Cape Town, and she has started taking in children whose parents were dying of AIDS. Now, it started off with one dying mother coming up to Mama Mafasela, as they call her, asking her to take care of her child. But then another mother came, and another, and another. And after a while, people were just leaving their children on her doorstep. At the time of the book's writing, she had 20 children living in her three-room home. 
The children ranged from the age of eight months to 18 years, and she loved them all perfectly. She said that she used to take a taxi to take them all to church, but that got too expensive. And so she developed kind of a lean-to against her house that became a makeshift school and sanctuary. And now every week a deacon comes out to lead them in worship together. Now these children have known loss and hardship, poverty, hunger, and yet in this home they have found an environment where they are witnesses to and recipients of God's perfect love for them. For Mama Mafasela, she raises all these children as her own, raises them to receive that love and to give that love to others. Her love has filled in the gaps of the circumstances in their lives. And third, the most important thing that we can glean and take away from this passage is simply to be like God. If we want to mimic God and imitate God, we will imitate the way that God loves others. And so we, we watch the way that God loves people. We respond in those kind of situations. Many of you have probably been watching the NCAA basketball tournament. Although, after the first round, many of you may have stopped watching it because I know that a lot of brackets may have been messed up. One of the first round losses was St. Joseph's overtime loss to UConn. Now, I really wanted St. Joseph's to win for a couple reasons. The first was that my cousin played in the NCAA tournament years ago for a women's team, and they played against the women UConn Huskies, and they had a heartbreaking loss, as did many of the teams who played against UConn. And so I kind of root for anybody who plays against them. But the second was because of the St. Joseph's coach, Phil Martelli. I don't know if you saw the interview that took place before the tournament began, but he was talking about his four-year-old grandson, Philip. Now, his four-year-old grandson has been attending the games since he was just a baby, and now he mimics his grandfather. He does everything his grandfather does. He wears a suit and tie. Sometimes he wears his grandfather's tie, which hangs to his feet. But he's got all the mannerisms down. He yells out advice to the players, sometimes to the refs. When there are timeouts, he has his own grease board to develop his own plays. He's got his grandfather's you know, arm crossing, and sometimes he, puts, he says, two fingers on my chin. He's got it down pat. He's watching his grandfather's every move. It was great. They did an interview, and, and they asked Phil Martelli what he thought about that. And he said, I love it. He said, it puts a smile on my face, and, and too often anymore, we're not smiling. But it also reminds me what really is important in life. Now, I'm sure that that first round loss was heartbreaking. I mean, it was an overtime. They played so hard. They were so close. The coach had three senior starters who they won't get that opportunity again. And for him personally, I mean, honestly, coaches are paid to bring home wins. I'm sure that it was a hard loss. But I'm also sure that at some point, he's going to be reminded of what really is important. 
he can look at his four-year-old grandson and see someone who absolutely loves him because this little son, this little grandson knows that he is perfectly loved by his grandfather. The truth is, if we want to get the most out of life, if we want to move on to perfection, to love others the way that God does, the best way to do that is to imitate our Heavenly Father, to do the things that we see God doing in the world, to forgive others, to serve others, to be like God. And when we imitate God, and we take on that perfect love of God for others, we will find the way that we can be reminded that we were made for goodness. We will understand the difference between flawless and perfect because we ourselves have received that perfect love. It's in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Let each of us lift up our own silent prayers. Amen.